Welcome to the FaithBridge Sermons Podcast. Today's sermon is brought to you by Bible teacher Scott Pollock and was recorded on Sunday, July 9th, 2023. And hey, if you're ever in the area, join us on Sunday on campus at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. and come say hi in person. And you could also follow us on Instagram at FaithBridge to see what goes on during the week. And as always, you could join us every Sunday for our online service called FaithBridge Live at faithbridge.org slash live. Here's Scott. Good morning, church. Welcome. So good to see you. Welcome to everybody tuning in online, the communion service. We're grateful. If you need a Bible, our ushers are coming forward with them. You raise your hand, make eye contact with them, wave them down. You'd make their day if you took a Bible from them. If you don't have one, you can keep it as a gift or you can just borrow it. Um, They're heavy, so you help them out if you take one. Um, Be good. All good? All right. Um, Again, so grateful that you're here this morning. Um, and I'm grateful to be with you. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into our scripture. Father, we bless you. We love you. We recognize your presence that beat us here this morning. We don't have to conjure your presence. We don't have to jump through hoops or crawl stairs on our knees to make you present. You own this space. All in the earth and universe are yours, and so we lease it from you. You beat us here. We're grateful that you welcomed us into your presence, we thank you. And as we are here, we want to meet with you. We don't want to be entertained or educated even. We're not here to check off some religious box so that you like us more because we came to church. We want to just meet with you, want to be with you and to submit ourselves to your presence, to the authority of your word and to be changed. And so we ask that now that you would speak through your word as you have already spoken by your spirit and worship, speak through your word and change us. Let me offer you an opportunity wherever you're tuning in or wherever you're seated and ask God to speak to you this morning. Ask God to change your heart. Extend that prayer same prayer to someone seated around you, even if you don't know who they are, ask God to speak to those around you or someone you know is tuning in from home. And humbly, I would ask that you would say a quick prayer for me, that God would speak through me this morning and it would be understandable and true. Father, we bless you. We love you. We are grateful for all that you have done, your grace and gifts and presence and love. We worship you. We honor you. We say we trust you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to introduce you to a friend that I wish I had. We didn't know each other because he was born in 1889, which is a little before me. But anyway, his name's Edwin. Uh, an incredible guy, a uh, believer in Jesus. I would, uh, again, have loved to have had a long cup of tea or several with him. Uh, grew up in Missouri uh, around there and then traveled to University of Chicago to do his Bachelor of Science and then start his PhD, which he had to rush uh, because World War I broke out and he wanted to join the Army, which he did, Expeditionary Forces, 86th Division, Um, shipped over to Europe, never actually saw any combat action and only served a little over a year and came back. Did a stint in Oxford, England at the Queens College uh, to make good on a dying wish of his father who wanted him to study law, but he was way more interested in science. 
And so got his PhD in science and physics and astronomy. And then around 1919, moved to California where he um, took up residence at Mount, the Mount Wilson Observatory in the hills of California. And he was one, among the first to sit down at the largest telescope on Earth at the time, 1919-1920, the 100-inch Hooker Telescope at Mount Wilson. Um, his last name is Hubble, Edwin Hubble, Major Edwin Hubble, and I love this cat, okay? Um, he took his little bentwood chair, and he sat at that telescope for many, many long nights, um, examining the space um, and the universe outside of Earth um, for the first time with the most powerful telescope um, known to man and made at that time. Um, you need to know something. At that time, 100 years ago, everyone on earth, besides a few crazy people, um, everyone on earth thought that the universe was our Milky Way galaxy. That's it. Anything outside of the Milky Way galaxy was just gas clouds of nebula. Um, and that was it. The extent of our universe was the Milky Way, which is quite large. Um, but Edwin Hubble would be the first to prove that wrong, and it was very controversial. In 1924, he began to study these gases on this great telescope, and he began to say, those are outside of our galaxy, and they seem to be much more complex. Um, well, his theories began to catch on. He died in 1953, uh, but the telescope that we put into orbit, named after him, the Hubble Telescope in 1991, and then fixed it in 1993 because it had some aberrations on the lens, um, it took a picture that I want to show you in just a second. It took a picture that changed the world. It took a picture that changed human history. It has been called the most important picture ever taken because what it did was prove what Hubble said um, 70 years before and it expanded our concept of the universe um, exponentially. Here's what we did. We aimed this telescope that was in orbit, so outside of the atmosphere and all of the interruption and disruption that the atmosphere causes with light and all the stuff. Uh, and we aimed it at one place. I say we, like I was there. Mm -hmm. We aimed it at one spot in the northern hemisphere sky in the constellation Ursa Major, which is the mama bear. Um, and we aimed it at a very, very small spot. To give you an example, it would be like if I was holding a tennis ball above my head at one end of a football field and you were at the other end of the other end zone of the football field. That size of a tennis ball about 100 meters away. It's that much we aimed at the Hubble telescope as it orbited Earth for 10 days over Christmas in 1995, 342 pictures over 10 days combined together the most powerful telescope ever now in orbit looking at a spot that would be dark. Remember at that time, we thought that the Milky Way was the, the universe and everything outside of the Milky Way were just these gas clouds. Hubble thought they were more than gas clouds and in this picture proved it. I'll show you this picture. It's called the Hubble Deep Field. What it did was this. 
What we thought were gas clouds outside of the Milky Way or just lone stars floating outside of the Milky Way turned out to be individual galaxies, some of them much larger than our own. In this simple picture, yes, the corner is missing, um, are over 3,000 galaxies. This was a fraction of one degree of our sky. And what it did was prove Hubble right and exponentially expand our understanding of the universe. That our Milky Way galaxy was just one of countless galaxies in the universe. It was crazy. It blew everyone's mind who was interested in this sort of thing in 1995. And it changed the world. So when we zoom in and in and in like that, they've done many more. They've called the, that was called the Hubble Deep Field. They've called the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. And then they have a Hubble Extreme Deep Field and looking further and further back as the telescopes get greater. Um, I would like to do the same thing today with you in the scriptures. I'd like to start out wide and then zoom in and keep zooming in until we see not only a story that's really beautiful in our text today in the book of Acts, not only a person, two people, in fact, three people, and then a city, and then a speech, but then we're going to zoom into one phrase in two verses that I hope, if God would be so gracious, would do the same magnanimous thing that that picture did, and that would be to change our life, to change our experience of the world and to expand our understanding of God's love and grace. That's what I'd like to do. Um, and to do that, um, we're going to be in the book of Acts chapter 13. We are continuing our series called The Life of Jesus AD. All of last year, we were in the gospel of Luke, which is um, Dr. Luke's writing part one. The book of Acts is Dr. Luke part two. Um, they were always and ever meant to go together they are volume one and volume two of Luke's great life work. The first part, the Gospel of Luke, is the life story of Jesus, a bios or biography of Jesus. And then the second one is really the life story of the church, a biography of the local church as it expanded, was born at Pentecost in chapter two, and has expanded to the uttermost regions of the world at that time, the Mediterranean world. And Acts, of course, ends early. There is much more that happens after that. We meet all these characters. We follow Peter for much of the first part of Acts, but from now on, actually in Acts 13, we will follow Paul, who we already met in nine and saw a couple of times since. We will follow the apostle Paul for the rest of the book. Um, and this is a unique passage. In Acts chapter 13, what we see is something really, really beautiful. I don't know if you've been here the last couple of weeks, uh, but Clay did a magnificent job over the last two weeks. Two weeks ago, he talked uh, about Peter's imprisonment and how John Mark and his mom, Mary, and Rhoda, at least, were all praying for Peter's release, and there's this miraculous release. And he talked about how um, prayer in our life should be prominent, if not preeminent, and it was just a really powerful message from Clay. Last week, he, he took the end of chapter 12 of Acts and, and talked about the death of Herod uh, Agrippa II, which was a grandson of Herod the Great. And he used that as a way to talk about our identity in Jesus. It was magnificent. If you haven't caught up on the last couple of weeks, please do that online because it's really worth your time. Today, we're going to really pick up at the end of chapter 12 as it transitions into chapter 13 
and again, start to focus more and for the rest of the book on the Apostle Paul. As we do that, I, I would like for you to do something strange with me. I want to give you a gift of two words. I want you to hold it, and then I'm going to ask you to apply it in a little bit. I know that's very strange. I'm going to give you a gift of two words. I want you to hold it, almost like they're physical things. I want you to hold it in your heart, and I'm going to ask you to apply it um, to a statement that I'll make a little later, okay? Two words, very simple. For me. Got it? Two words, for me. And I'm going to hold that for a second, and then we're going to apply it later, because that's what God wants us to do as we zoom in. Like the Hubble telescope did, zoom in and see more and more and more beautiful things. That's what we're going to do. Let's start in Acts chapter 13. And what we're going to see here is really, really wonderful. And then I'm going to give you a little tour of some of the places here. Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Now there, was, uh, there were at Antioch, remember three weeks ago we were introduced to that city, which will be the home base of all of the mission trips that follow in the book of Acts. Antioch, Syrian Antioch. Now there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed again and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Notice this. There are several men who have been gifted by the Holy Spirit in teaching and in uh, prophecy prophets and teachers, and of those men, the Holy Spirit, while the church, notice, while the church is praying and fasting, he identifies Saul and Barnabas, set them apart for the ministry to which I have called them. And then what do they do? They fast and pray more to make sure and confirm the word of the Spirit, lay their hands on them and pray, and then send them out, which will become the first of three missionary journeys that we have in the book of Acts, and we know at least one other happened after the book of Acts was completed. And so this first missionary journey is just about to begin, but I love the spirit of the local church in Antioch. While they were praying and fasting, what, for what we don't know, probably just to ask God, what do you want us to do? Where are you sending us? What do you want to use us for in the life of those who don't know about Jesus. So they're praying and fasting for this. The Spirit says, Saul and Barnabas, set them apart, and I'll show them where I want them to go. They pray and fast more, lay their hands on them and pray, and then they send them. Where do they send them? Well, I'd like to give you a little tour, okay? Let's set your expectations. Here's the first part of the tour just to let you know if we're on the right spot. All right, everybody good? Uh, <laughs> we're gonna zoom in a little bit. Uh, focusing on the Mediterranean, obviously, we're gonna zoom in a couple of more. This one, and in the next picture, we'll pause and say here one interesting thing. All of the human narrative of the Bible happens in this picture. All of the human narrative of the scriptures. The Garden of Eden is somewhere in this picture. Noah's Ark rests on Mount Ararat, which is right in the center of this picture. All of the Old Testament in Egypt happens right at the bottom of the picture. The Red Sea crossing probably happens at the very bottom of the picture. All of the conquest, the Holy Land, etc., And then all of Paul's missionary journeys, which likely lead him to Rome and Italy and even beyond, are all in this picture. All of the human narrative of the Old and New Testament happened in this picture. It's a pretty small space compared to the whole world, right? 
pretty wild. We're going to zoom in more and then give you some place names. Um, we hear Antioch, that's in our story. It's in Syria, so it's called Syrian Antioch. That's going to be important in a little bit. Damascus is the city um, to which Paul was going when he met the resurrected Jesus and had his life-changing experience of faith and belief and trust. Um, Damascus is the oldest continually occupied city on the earth. Um, in the bottom is Jerusalem. This is the mother church, of course. And then we have Egypt at the bottom. This is the Mediterranean Sea, Asia Minor. We call that Turkey now. Greece and then Italy on the left. Right? So um, let's see where Paul is about to go. Because right after the verse that we read in chapter 13, and I encourage you to read chapter 13 and 14, which is all of the first missionary journey, this is where they're going to go in blue. They're going to leave Antioch and go down to a place called Seleucid on the coast and then get in a boat and sail to Cyprus. Why did they go to Cyprus? Well, this is where the Lord sent them, first answer. Second answer, it was Barnabas's home. So it makes sense in some way that they go to a place that is familiar to which Barnabas knew, maybe some of them knew him. And so Barnabas is from Cyprus. I don't know what city he's from, but they land on one end and they march the entire length of the island preaching at synagogues as they go. They leave from a city called Paphos and they sail north to Perga, that first little yellow dot on the coast of Asia Minor. Now they brought John Mark with them, we'll read that in just a second, and he decides at this point to leave them. I don't wanna go with you anymore, we don't exactly know why, but it caused a bit of a rift between him and Paul that was healed later. Paul leaves Perga with Barnabas, and they march north to another Antioch, Pisidian Antioch, and that's where we're going to see our story in a little bit. He leaves there after preaching because the Jews cause a stir and cause to persecute him. He goes over to a city called Derb and preaches there in the synagogue and then to a city called Lystra and preaches there. Well, the Jews continue to seek him out and cause problems and persecute him and contradict him and really try to stop his ministry. In fact, it gets so heated at Lystra that they stone him and drag him out of the city thinking that he's dead. And when they think he's dead, I don't know where Barnabas is, it doesn't tell us, they all march back into the city and then Paul pops up and says, wow, that was crazy. Um, they thought he was dead, but he wasn't. And then he goes back into the city and goes, hey, let's keep going to Iconium. So he goes to Iconium, the next place, um, have no idea what he looked like. This is crazy. When you stone a person and think they're dead, they probably don't look good. And at the end of his life, we may understand why in 2 Timothy... Paul is only writing and he says, only Luke is with me. The writer of Luke, the gospel of Luke and Acts. What, what, what was Luke's um, profession? He's a doctor. Why do you think Paul needed a doctor to be with him? Because this is, he experienced this many times. He, he had the 39 lashes from the Jews five times. He was beaten and stoned many, many times. Spent a night in, uh, a day and night on the open sea right? Often went without, hung, without food, without drink, often in danger of robbers and thieves. He led for the sake of the mission of the Holy Spirit and the church, a very difficult life. So at the end of his probably very short life, he needed a doctor to care for him. So 
back to the map. He leaves Iconium and what does he do on the blue line? He says, let's go back to Lystra where they thought he was dead. And he goes back to Lystra and Derb and Pisidian Antioch then comes back to the coast and sails back to Antioch and gives them a report. But this is only the first one. The second one in green leaves from Antioch. This is, occurs a little bit of a split because Barnabas wanted to take John Mark again and he said, no, he left us the first time. And so Barnabas takes John Mark and goes in a different direction and... Um, Paul takes Silas and goes north by foot um, through some of the areas that he had already, already seen. And then those little jagged areas are my way of saying, he, he says at this time in Acts 15, 16, 17, hey, I wanted to go this way, but the spirit of the Lord wouldn't let me. And then, then I tried again to go this way and the spirit of the Lord wouldn't let me. So he ends up at a place called Troas, the ancient city of Troy. He has a vision there, goes across to Philippi where he meets Lydia, seller of purple fabric, the first convert in all of Europe to Jesus Christ, her and her family. And then he goes down the Via Ignatia all the way to Thessalonica and Berea, 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 uh, and then sails down to Athens in chapter 17. We're gonna see all of this in turn. Spends just a little bit of time there, goes to Corinth, and then sails to Ephesus. He spends a long time in Corinth, probably a year and a half. Goes to Ephesus and then sails to Jerusalem and back home. And then the third missionary journey, by far the longest of duration in red, by land over to Corinth and back all the way up, probably spends three years in Ephesus at this point, uh, and then sails back to Jerusalem where he is captured by the Jews, imprisoned, and he never makes it back to Antioch. From here, he sails to Rome where he is imprisoned in house imprisonment, and this is where the book of Acts end, uh, ends. We take it on good authority that he was released after a certain time. He did some sort of ministry, maybe even went further uh, west into Spain and then was uh, arrested again um, in the late 60s and very likely beheaded under the reign of Nero around 67, 68, 69. Um, these are the three missionary journeys that we see in Acts from Paul. But we're going to go back to the blue line because that's, excuse me, that's where we see our story today. The very first missionary journey of Paul, church planting, Holy Spirit journey of Paul, and the very first speech of Paul is what we're about to uh, experience together. And what you need to know is that this is the beginning in many parts of the public ministry of Paul that we know of. Now, there are many silent years, there are many, more than a decade and a half of ministry and teaching that he has already been involved in, but we don't know much about that. But here he is on his first missionary journey, his first speech of many, all of his 13 plus letters that fill the rest of the New Testament come out of these experiences. All of them are written to regions and cities which he visited or sent missionaries to. This is the beginning of everything. And so we'll look at Acts chapter 13, verse 13. And we'll see um, a little bit into the middle of their journey. Now, Paul and his companions, that's Barnabas and John Mark, put out to sea from Paphos, that's the city on the very end of Cyprus, and came to Perga and Pamphylia. They sailed north. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian in Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. And so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. 
I would encourage you to read this speech. It doesn't take long. I will paraphrase it for you in my own words. Here's what he says. Men of Israel, he's in a synagogue. I'd like you to picture it in your mind if you could. Probably a stone building made out of very, very large stones. They're probably light in color because that's what the stones look like in Turkey. Sandstone, most likely. If it's two-story, all of the men are on the first floor and the women are tucked in the balcony at the back because in synagogues, they separate the men from the women. If it's just one story, men on one large side, women over in the corner. Now, the non-Jews... The God-fearers, the proselytes to Judaism, those who are not ethnic Jews but want to live and worship the God of the Jews, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're probably in the back with their scarlet letters on, right? I mean, they're good, but, you know, not as good as Jews. And so they read the law and the prophets. The attendant unrolls the scroll, reads it as they do, rolls it back, and then puts it back into the ark container and then says, Paul and Barnabas, you're here we, we know that you're traveling around talking to Jews and synagogues, get up and speak. And so he comes, he stands in front of them. Can you hear the silence? Candle flickers around the corner. Maybe some beams of light coming in from small windows at the top. There's a hush. Paul says, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of our fathers chose our fathers. And when our people were in Egypt, he built them up into a great nation. And with an outstretched and mighty arm, he freed them from that nation and led them out into the wilderness and put up with them there for over 40 years and then led them by that same outstretched arm into his promised land. He kicked out seven nations in front of them and then gave them that land as an inheritance. He gave them judges to rule over them, and that led them to a person named Samuel. And Samuel was the one who allowed them, because they asked for it, to get a king. His name was Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. And when God's plan was done with Saul, we get to David from the tribe of Judah. And God made a promise to David and said, you are my chosen. He was a man after God's own heart. And God said, one of your descendants will be on the throne forever and ever. Now, up until this point, you may be wondering, if you're a Jew, in the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch, uh, what are we doing here, Paul? We, we know all that. It's just a history lesson. It'd, like be, it'd be like me coming and saying, hey, uh, Faith Bridge today, I'd really like to expand upon uh, three things. I'd like to talk to you about how hot it is in Houston. I'd like to talk to you about the recent history of the Astros and why we can't seem to ever be done with dot road construction here. I'd just like to talk to you just about that. And you would be like, Scott, we live in that every day. What are you, why, why, right? And so here's Paul giving a history. Notice, giving a history. You gotta ask yourself these questions when you read your Bible. He's giving a history of God's people to People who know and live and talk about the history like every day. And first of all, you're like, why? Up until this point. But here's where it turns. He says, David, God made a promise. And here's what he says. From this man's descendants, God sent us the Messiah, Jesus. And that's what I want to talk to you about. Because after the ministry of John the Baptist whom said, I baptize in water, the Messiah is coming to baptize in the Holy Spirit. I'm not even 
worthy to untie his sandal, Jesus comes and confirms himself with his teaching, with miracles, with great wonders and signs. And then the Jews got so mad, they asked Pilate to kill him, and Pilate did by crucifying him on a tree and burying him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. He quotes Psalm 2 and Psalm 16 and Isaiah 53, and he says, this man is our hope. He's the one we've been waiting for, and his resurrection is the sign. He appeared to all people and his disciples, and many of them, they know it, and I also saw him. And I'm here to tell you, men, listen. In this one is the forgiveness of sins proclaimed. And in this one, you are freed from all of the things that the law of Moses could not free you from. Do not miss this opportunity. Then he sits down. The whole speech has written maybe last 20 or 30 seconds. So either he said it exactly like this, or he worked with Luke later and wrote it down in a reduced, revised version. It may have been longer, but we have a perfectly accurate copy of what he said that day, and it's punchy to the point. What is the point? All this history down to Jesus. Here's what I would say. Um, Paul could have wrapped it up like this if he were a modern preacher. He could say this. History has been shaped by the Father's love. That's why he started all the way back in the beginning, which led him to Jesus, to the cross, to the resurrection. History has been shaped by the Father's love. You still holding those two words? Because now's the time to apply them. History has been shaped, friends, by the Father's love for me. And that's Paul's point. That all of the work that God has done has a purpose. Now let's pause here and say, there are many unfortunate corruptions and aberrations of the gospel alive today. Some versions of the gospel seem to make way too much out of me and us. I'm not trying to do that, by the way. Because the gospel biblically, especially when it read Paul and listen to Jesus, is way more about God but it's about God's love and God's grace and the work of Jesus who is God focused and given to you, to us, to me. I also have a conviction. I have a conviction that whether you're a seeker here or a skeptic, and I'm so glad that you are tuning in or here, whether you have believed and walked with Jesus for decades, I have a conviction that the centrality of the gospel of Jesus, the beauty and simplicity of it is often corrupted and misunderstood and underestimated by skeptics and seekers and by people who walk with Jesus for a very long time. I think that's one of the schemes of the devil. So what I'd like to do is zoom in on this speech as we see the first of these three missionary journeys, right? We see Paul, uh, Barnabas, and John Mark, and then Paul and Barnabas and Pisidian Antioch, and then we see a speech. I'd like to zoom in on one phrase, really a, a few statements at the very end of this sermon and try to make sense of it um, in a way that changes our understanding 
of the universe, our understanding of God, of ourselves. Zoom in and see and not underestimate the gospel. And those verses are at the end. We'll put them up on the screen. The verses 38 and 39. This is near the end of his speech. He says, therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. But this is a great statement. Watch. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. That's a powerful statement. We need to pause for a second. Because if you're familiar with Paul, you know and you may see that this single statement here seems to be the seed of much of what Paul writes and preaches from here on in his story. I'll tell you, Romans chapter 3 is a large exposition on this verse. Galatians chapter 3 and 4 and 5 is a large exposition on this idea. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is a large exposition on this idea. That the gospel is proclaimed to you, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus. And watch, it frees you from things that the law of Moses could not free you from. I'd like to talk about that for just a second. Now, when I say the law of Moses, that is, of course, the Mosaic covenant, not just the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. The Ten Commandments are the sharp tip of the whole. The law of Moses takes three and a half or four books of the first five books to explain. It's not only the Ten Commandments, it's hundreds of Laws including the sacrificial system and laws of offerings and sacrifices. That's the Mosaic Covenant. And it was the ruling paradigm from that point until the time of Jesus. Which is why he gets in so much trouble with the Pharisees, right? In the Gospels. The Pharisees are sort of like Jesus' arch nemesis in the gospels, because under their royal robes, if they had a t-shirt on, Moses' face would be on the t-shirt. Like they are on team Moses, okay? And Jesus even calls them, you are disciples of Moses. They were all about the Mosaic law, which makes sense when it comes to why Jesus got into so much trouble with them. Every covenant in the Old Testament has a sign. You know that? The Noah covenant, the Noahic covenant has the sign of the rainbow, right? The Abrahamic covenant has the sign of circumcision. Duffy's going to talk about that next week in Acts chapter 15. I'm glad I was this week. Um, in, uh, the new covenant has the sign of the spirit. What is the sign of the Mosaic covenant? Do you know? The sign of the Mosaic covenant is clearly expressed in Exodus 31, and it is the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the sign of the Mosaic Covenant, which is why Jesus gets in so much trouble on the Sabbath in the Gospels. Because he's trying to um, in, engage the Pharisees on their level and say, you're misunderstanding the law. It was never meant to save you. It can't save you. It was never meant to redeem you. So what is the purpose of the Mosaic Law? This is important when it comes to this idea. I'll give you three things. Three purposes of the Mosaic Law, pretty simple. God is holy, you are not. You're looking for a permanent solution to the difference between one and two. Let me say that again. God is holy, you are not. You're looking for a permanent solution to the difference between one and two because the sacrifices that you take to the altar 
are not permanent. They're not sufficient. We're looking for something better. So the law was meant to help people understand God's holiness, our sinfulness, and then to lead us to the Messiah, the permanent solution, which is why Galatians chapter three, that passage that I just mentioned, Paul would say this, later written into the same area of Pisidian Antioch. He said, the law of Moses was a tutor, like an educational tutor, leading us to Jesus. Once we came to faith in Jesus, we don't need the tutor anymore. But the Pharisees and Jews had misunderstand that. They didn't see Jesus as the Messiah, so they're still betting all on the law of Moses. And here in his speech to Jews and proselytes in a synagogue, he says, in Jesus, forgiveness of sins has been proclaimed to you, and in him, you can be freed from all of the things that the law of Moses could not free you from. I will not put these on the screen, but I'd like to talk to you about at least seven things as we conclude that I think the gospel of Jesus properly understood in all of its beauty will free you from. Perhaps you can find yourself in one of these things. First one on my list that the gospel frees you from, that the law of Moses could not free you from is religion. Now, I don't mean religion in a pejorative way. I don't mean religion with a capital R, perhaps. I mean it with a small r. The way I define religion is this. Man's attempts at reaching God. I would add a word to that, perhaps. Man's futile attempts at reaching God. That's how I understand religion. And religion, Paul would say, for the rest of his writings, is futile. It'll run you ragged. In the end, it'll put you to bed dirty and wet and tired with no relief or freedom at all. That's what religion does. That's what a sacrificial system without a permanent solution does. And he will say here and in the rest of his writings, the gospel of Jesus sets you free from the futility of trying to reach God on your own. I would also say that the gospel of Jesus sets you free from earning, earning your way to heaven. Now, also don't misunderstand that. The gospel is not opposed to effort or work or obedience or repentance or confession or discipleship, sanctification, transformation, all those things. The gospel is perfectly best friends with all those things. But the gospel of Jesus is diametrically opposed to the idea of earning. Why? Because Paul would say earning leads us to boast in ourselves. And the gospel of Jesus sets us free from the trap of earning because all we can boast about is Jesus. Religion, earning, what about performing, performance, posturing, even pretending? A lot of us, I'm the guiltiest charged chief among sinners. We come into a place like this and we put on our Sunday best, we even call it that, we paint on our smile and we sort of act, we go through some steps, we wanna present ourselves. We pretend a little bit. We posture a little bit. Because that's what law-based legalism things encourage. And Paul says, the gospel says, no, you can come broken. You can come messy. You can come with depression and addiction and a terrible marriage and horrible home of origin stories and trauma and horrible church of origin stories. You can bring all of that to the gospel of Jesus. 
There is no entrance exam. You don't have to perform or pretend. There's another word I think the gospel frees us from. It's very biblical in the Psalms. It's striving. I like that word because I get the picture of, of scratching and scaling and sort of crawling after what we think we have to have. The gospel of Jesus Christ frees you from striving. And the law of Moses could never do it. I got a couple more. How about insecurity? When you base everything on a legal system of do's and don'ts and sacrifices, you are constantly worried if you've done enough. You've constantly worried if the balance is in the red or the black, and you live under a cloud of insecurity. That happened to me when I trusted in Jesus as a college freshman at Texas A&M. I lived in insecurity under my religious system before that, I knew I I believed in God. I was a theist. I believed that Jesus was a historical figure. I didn't know why he died and rose. Um, Had no understanding of the purpose of the gospel. Um, And so when I finally understood that, um, I kept some of that insecurity. Someone once asked me, hey, um, are you going to go to heaven when you die? And I was like, yes, I am. They were like, how sure are you? Zero to 100%. I was like, yeah, 90%. I didn't want to be arrogant, right? (laughs) And he goes, what? I'd like to talk to you about that 90%. And I was like, really? Is that not a good answer? I thought that was a perfect answer. That's like the humble Christian answer. He's like, no, it needs to be 100. And uh, as I started to learn and be mentored and walked with Jesus, I realized that some of this insecurity f- came with me. And I want to tell you, the gospel of Jesus sets you free from insecurity. Two more, fear. The gospel of Jesus sets you free from fear. Because many of you, like me, are times, at times hiding in the garden like Adam and Eve. God wants to come and walk with us at his normal time, and we're hiding in the bushes from fear over our sin and the consequences of our sin. God sees all. Remember, he's the one who knows you best and loves you most. The gospel of Jesus frees you from fear, and finally also in the garden, shame. The gospel of Jesus frees you from shame when the law of Moses could never, could never take that away. I'm not good enough. I'll never be good enough. I've never done what I'm supposed to. I've not done enough. Let me give you the biblical answer, friends. I'm sorry, but the level of obedience is 100%, 100% of the time. And because we all fall short, that's why Paul says later, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that when God looks at us, he sees us in Jesus and through Jesus and sees perfection. There's no shame, no fear, no insecurity, no striving, no performing, no earning, no religion. The gospel of Jesus sets you free from all the things that the law of Moses could not. And that is a zoom-in view, I think, of a life-changing truth. History has been shaped by the Father's love for me. History has been shaped by the Father's love for me. Let's end the story, because I want you to see the response of Paul's sermon in Acts chapter 13, because the response is really good. 
The response is after he stopped talking and people came up to he and Barnabas, they came up and basically said, hey, this is pretty cool, kind of a little different, but could you come back next Saturday and uh, talk again? He's like, sure. And we pick up in verse 44. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the Lord, the word of the Lord. Get that! There's just a normal synagogue, and then the next city, they're like spilling out the door, they're packing in, the the synagogue attendant is very nervous. Hey, you're not in the right section. What are you doing? What are you doing? You're not dressed correctly. Your head is uncovered. Oh my God, what's happening? You know? Um, All in Hebrew, by the way, but it's just, it's, it's chaos. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. But since you repudiated and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For it is written in Isaiah, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And yes, there was some more persecution and the disciples were filled with awe and grace and the Holy Spirit. And Paul and Barnabas moved on. Just a simple question. How would you respond to the message? How would you respond to Paul's sermon right now? What is keeping you if you find yourselves on the outside of the gospel as a skeptic? What is keeping you right now, today, from trusting in Jesus as your Savior. Yes, you have some questions. Yes, you have some stories, perhaps some trauma, some wounds and injuries, and all of those things are real and relevant. But perhaps, by God's grace, they don't seem as formidable and as big as they once were, and now you're ready. And you can take that step to say, I receive the gift that Jesus gives I accept and I believe Jesus was God and died on the cross to satisfy God's wrath for my sin and that God has shaped all of history with his love for me and I receive it. Perhaps you have walked with Jesus for a long time, you're a believer, but the gospel has become uncentral, non-central. It's become corrupted. It's become a little less. It's got a little too much legalism and law mixed in. It's got a little too much license mixed in all the things. And perhaps you today just need a transformative revival of the beauty and simplicity of the gospel in your heart. What's keeping you from that? As a college freshman, I, I knew about God And I knew about Jesus, but I didn't know them. So I needed to sit down and someone gracious sat with me and opened his Bible. He talked to me about sin and I said, guilty. He talked to me about Jesus and I said, I need him. And he talked to me about grace and freedom. And I said, is that true? And he said, yes, it's true. And I said, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard in all of my life. And he said, it's the greatest thing that's ever been told. And he could have said this, All of this history has been lovingly shaped by the Father for you, Scott. And I would say that to you today. How will you respond? Are you tired? Are you tired of religion and earning and performing and striving and insecurity and fear and shame? Are you tired? I am. I'm exhausted. And just hear the words of Jesus. 
He says, hey, come to me. Would you come to me? Are you tired? Are you weary? My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I will give you rest for your soul. Come to me. Watch me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace that I want to pour out into your life. Come to me. Come to me. And that's my prayer for you. Let me pray for you. Father, we bless you. We thank you of your goodness and grace. Oh, how beautiful you are to give us these things freely in Jesus Christ. And for the skeptics and those on the outside, perhaps on the periphery, if they've never understood in this moment, perhaps they would just pray with me. Not that prayer is required, but it memorializes it in a way, and maybe they could say in their heart, Jesus, I, I trust you. I believe that you are God and you died on the cross to forgive me of my sins and you rose to new life and I received the free gift. I believe, I trust you. And then thank you for saving me because you promised to and you never fail to keep your promise. For those of us who have walked with Jesus, we can say, would you give me a revival of the gospel in my heart? The centrality and simplicity and beauty of the gospel. Would you help me zoom in and take a picture that changes my life, changes the world, and it's the picture of you, Jesus. That's our prayer. We love you. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.